Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, Leonard Warren discusses his biography of the 19th century Philadelphia scientist, Joseph Leidy. Leonard Warren, author of Joseph Leidy, The Last Man Who Knew Everything, you say in your book that Joseph Leidy's brain is in a jar at the University of Pennsylvania. At the Wistar Institute. Why is it there? The reason is that at the turn of the century, there was the feeling among scientists that uh, that it was be, might be possible to tell what sort of uh, a person uh, contained a brain, the the brain, just from uh, and his characteristics by an examination of his brain after his death, the number of folds and uh, that sort of thing shape, configuration, the size was very important. A society was formed and to join the society you had to will your brain uh, to the society and they would do all the measurements and so on. Uh, Joseph Leidy was the president of that society. As a result, brains accumulated not only from great achievers uh, rather famous men, scientists and so on, but also criminals, degenerates. They wanted to make a clear distinction between the brains of the achievers and the brains of criminals and murders. Of course, they found no differences. The, the largest brain of all was from a carpenter uh, of no particular intellectual uh, achievement. Uh, and gradually, this sort of idea died out, but they still had the brains. So they have been stored at, at the, in the basement of the Wistar Institute for uh, almost a hundred years now. Any plans to do anything with them? No, nothing particular. Sometimes they're called upon for displays of one sort or another. But uh, no, it's uh, scientifically there's really very little merit to having them. They're just there and they fail to uh, to dispose of them. I mean, it, it would be a, almost vandalism to get rid of them. On the other hand, there have been some that have uh, been uh, disposed of inadvertently. For instance, a very sloppy attendant dropped the brain of Walt Whitman and it was destroyed so that uh, they no longer have Walt Whitman's brain. They had to sort of scoop it off the floor. <laughs> what happened to Joseph Leidy's body? Uh, well, uh, he was uh, he uh, was incinerated. I mean, uh, cremated. Uh, he felt that uh, the conventional burial in a coffin was really the same process. It was an oxidation process. He'd rather go fat, oxidize rapidly. And he wouldn't occupy any much of the 
surface of the earth. He felt that it was a rather primitive, uh, wasteful ha uh, procedure to bury people in coffins and occupy land. Now, your book is called The Last Man Who Knew Everything. What yes. do you mean by that? I, well, let me just say that it is a bit of hyperbole. I mean, nobody knows everything. He wasn't all that well-versed in music, in the arts, in the humanities, he, although he knew something of it. He was, in the field of science, he was a master of biology, botany, and zoology. He was a master of geology. He knew a tremendous amount of, uh, of anatomy. Uh, he knew a lot about medicine. He knew he was an expert with insects. Uh, and. Uh, plants. Uh, he, he knew the plants around the Philadelphia area uh, to a greater degree than any other botanist. Uh, he had an enormous capacity to assimilate uh, and absorb and assimilate knowledge. And uh, he was uh, so expert in so many fields that I say he knew everything. because. He got the reputation. He got this reputation when uh, 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 when he was living, and uh, he used to receive any time anybody found anything that they didn't know what it was, or a fossil bone, or a dead animal that no one had ever seen, or a plant, they'd send it to Lydie because if Lydie didn't know, nobody knew. He was sort of an authority. Uh, many things that were sh uh, shipped to the uh, Smithsonian for identification were immediately transferred to Leidy by Spencer Baird, who uh, was the, a, an, a, a, a lifelong friend of Leidy's, who was the head of the Smithsonian Institute, and as a matter of fact taught at nearby Dickinson College here for many years. How did it come about that you wrote a book about him? Well. Uh, when I first came to Philadelphia, I, I knew nothing of Lydie. I'd never heard of the man. I had come from Washington, from the National Institutes of Health, where I was working. And uh, to get to my laboratory, I had to go through a building, which was the biology building of the University of Pennsylvania, and it was called the Lydie Building. Didn't mean anything to me. And it was a large building, and just uh, there was a frieze around, uh, just under the cornice, in which was, uh, in which uh, the names of the greats were, were carved out: uh, Darwin, Aristotle, Lamarck. You know all the great names. And there was Lydie. I thought, who is Lydie? You know, to be in this class, and then. Uh, to, a friend of mine became the Joseph Leidy Professor of Anatomy at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. And then when I went home, I passed Leidy Boulevard, and there was a Joseph Leidy School. So I started looking into it, and the more I investigated, the, uh, the more attracted I became. I mean, familiarity uh, bred admiration. He got better and better as I learned more and more about him. And uh, that book is a distillation of uh, a lot that I learned about the man and his times. How'd you write it? Uh, what, uh, what, what kind of research did you do? Well, I, uh, you see, 
The wonderful thing about doing this sort of work is, uh, historical work, especially 19th and 18th century is, in Philadelphia is, that you have all these marvelous treasure houses. First of all, you have the University of Pennsylvania Library, the Van Pelt, which has just got everything. And then there's the library and the archives of the, of the American Philosophic Society and the Academy of Natural Sciences uh, and uh, also the library company, that's Benjamin Franklin's library and the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. They are just so rich, it, you don't really have to travel too much. I have been here and there to Boston once, uh, to Smithsonian once or twice, but it's pretty well all in Philadelphia. And uh, it was very convenient. And being a senior citizen, I could hop onto a bus or a, or a streetcar and get there all day for nothing. <laughs> so there I was. When did he live? He was born in 1823, and he died in 1891. And he was born, uh, he was a pure Philadelphia product. He was born, raised, educated, worked, and died in Philadelphia, all within a radius of about three miles. He was born on 3rd Street, just north of Market. And then he bought a house on Filbert Street in the shadow of the city hall. And the last year of his life, he moved to Spruce Street. And... Uh, what did he do for a living? He, his central job that provided him with, uh, with the wherewithal to live was the, he was professor of anatomy at the University of Pennsylvania. His primary job was to teach medical students anatomy. But on top of that, uh, he was the chief curator of the, the Museum of the Academy of Natural Sciences. Those were his two main jobs. He, he's, he's an MD. He was an MD from the University of Pennsylvania in 1844. He finished medical school when he was 21 years old? Uh, yes. Is that unusual? Uh, no, because uh, schools, first of all, the medical school was just a couple of years you know, and three months per year, so it was nothing. And uh, it, it, it wasn't, the demands weren't, the, uh, then weren't what they are today. So he was, uh, he was young, very young, and uh, he went into practice. His, well, his father was a sort of no-nonsense kind of person, and uh, he insisted that his son may start making a living, open a practice, get married, have children like normal people do. And he was interested in, in nature, in doing research, his research. And uh, he, uh, uh, he, he opened a practice at the insistence of his father, but his heart wasn't in it. And the, the story is that when his first prospective patient came to the front door, he locked it, backed off, and waited till the person went away. This went on for two years until he finally quit. His father was dismayed. You also said that for a time he was assistant coroner of the city of Philadelphia? Yes. 
he had a tremendous, he, he was a workaholic. It's quite apparent. On top of all his jobs, he was an assistant coroner to the coroner of the city of Philadelphia. And he uh, took it upon himself to examine in great detail any animal that died on city streets or that died in circuses, menageries of various kinds, people's pets, and so on. As a result, over the, a five or ten year period, he examined in great detail hundreds of species of animals, all sorts of animals, and he became America's leading comparative anatomist because of his vast experience in comparing different animal forms. And this, of course, came in very handy when he went into paleontology, the examination of fossil bones of extinct animals, which he put together to sort of recreate the animal which gave rise to the fossil bones. When he would examine them, what would he do? I mean, would he take notes or write he, papers about it? Yes, he, he would he describe them very well. He was, I should say, that he was a wonderful artist and a marvelous uh, illustrator. And some of his stuff, it, it just takes your breath away. It's just so beautiful. We have some of these pictures here that he drew. Unfortunately, those aren't in color. He did them in color originally? Uh, he did them in color, and they are just beautiful. Uh, and what are these? I beg your pardon? What are these that we're looking oh, at? Oh, these are unicellular organisms. They are amoeba. He gave the name amoeba, amoeba proteus to amoeba, uh, among other. But he was uh, the father of American parasitology and of protozoology. These are protozoans. They are unicellular uh, beasts that uh, either plant or animal. Uh, the plant having the chlora, having chlorophyll, or the animals that don't, uh, and uh, he, it, getting back to uh, the the drawing, you know, his he showed a precocious uh, talent as an artist, and his father immediately wanted him to be a sign painter, painting signs of horses over tavern doors. His mother, stepmother, actually was a strong, intelligent woman who had higher ambitions. She made sure he went to the medical school to exercise his talents. He thought, she thought in medicine he could do a lot better. And, and of course, the medical school was only a few blocks away. And uh, he graduated, as I said, in 1844. At that time, he was very fortunate because the University of Pennsylvania was without question the best medical school in the country, and he went to it. What is parasitology? Para, well, let me go back to the animals on city streets. He, as I said, he examined literally hundreds of species of animals, the weirdest material. The thing he noticed was that every creature has other creatures living on them or in them, whether they bugs of various, insects of various kinds, uh, fungi, uh, worms, uh, all, all sorts of things. And they, they were, they were, it, these could be inside in the organs or outside. And what he noticed was that in some cases, 
it, it was of no consequence. They were just there. They did no harm. They did no good. In some cases, for instance, he, he, found, he examined termites and beetles and millipedes, but he examined the termite especially, the, the, what was in the intestines of the termite. And he found that it was cramped with these organisms that you just saw, these protozoa. And he was able to figure out that the two had to live together, the termite and the organisms in his gut. That's how a, a termite lives and digests wood. That the, the, the termite bites and chews up the wood, goes into the stomach, the little organisms in the gut digest, and they both live happily. So the termite so, couldn't digest the wood without these? A termite without these organisms could not digest wood. He, he worked with a microscope? You, you yes. talked about him as a microscopist? Microscopist. Uh, there were microscopists before uh, Leidy. There's no question about that. In fact, there was a man called Bailey at West Point who was a very fine microscopist. But when Leidy came on the scene, he transformed the microscope to a sort of an exotic instrument that, you know, was very special to a, just a powerful everyday working analytic instrument. He applied it to plants, to animals. He applied it to st uh, rocks and minerals, to gems. He showed how, uh, why certain gems are opalescent for, through the striations which he observed during the, and measured under the microscope. In every field, he just simply applied it so that, in a way, he was America's first truly productive microscopist. He put the microscope on the map, uh, as he did so many other things. He just flooded the scene with all his information and all his data. He was a commanding figure. There's a couple of things that you point out in the book as, as his significant contributions, and I want to ask you about them. And one of them is uh, he discovered the trachina. Trachina, yes. Trachina. Yes. I may say that because of this work with the parasites, uh, with trachina, he is known as the father of parasitology. But yes, he discovered uh, a small cysts containing the larvae of trachina. Uh, in his morning ham in pork and in pork products. Now, this was a terribly significant uh, finding because what it did was identify the source of human infection of the trachina, uh, when the man ate and woman ate trachina, uh, meat or infected material, they developed trichinosis, which was frequently a fatal disease. And it was a terrible public health problem. They didn't know really where it came from, but Leidy showed that it was the eating of infected pork products that did it. And he also advocated as early as 1853 and then again in 1866, he advocated the thorough heating of pork products and then uh, the, the threat of infection was eliminated. So, and he also showed that uh, what his discovery signified was the 
the life cycle of the trachea. In other words, man eats and woman eats the infected pork. It grows in, in, in the human. The elimination products of the human are eaten or in some way get to pigs and the cycle is complete. So it was uh, tying it down to just ordinary public health and sanitation, which is another aspect of this discovery. You say that Leidy was the person who determined that horses were in North America before the Spaniards brought them here. Yes. Uh, it had commonly been believed that the Spanish had introduced the horse into America at the beginning, in the early 1500s, if not late, not 1400s. And uh, this was received knowledge. Well, Leidy showed that there were horses in the Midwest in prehistoric times and that they had become extinct. He identified at least five species of horse in North America and that the, in fact, the horse arose in America and went and probably migrated to the rest of the world through Asia and so on. Uh, but uh, it, it, it's true that the Spanish did reintroduce it, but it was a reintroduction. It was not something new to America. As a matter of fact, he wondered out loud, even in writing, why it was that the horse which flourished in America became extinct. He just couldn't imagine. And then, when it was reintroduced by the Spanish, it flourished in the wild, and uh, it was a question that he couldn't answer. And Darwin must have read his material, because almost the same words, he asks the same question. Why did the horse in North America become extinct? And yet, when it was reintroduced, it flourished. What happened to kill off horses? There's no he, answer. How did he discover that there were horses here in the first place? I mean, did he go on archaeological trips? Uh, uh, Leidy was not a field man. He stayed close to home. And, but people, as I said before, well, he had the reputation of knowing everything, so that people would send him all sorts of things. That's one source of his material, his specimens of all kinds. But there were professional collectors, fossil collectors. For instance, Ferdinand van der Veer Hayden, a very interesting man, who, an MD who went west and fell in love with it, became a geologist. He was really a protege of Leidy's, and he stayed out west. In fact, he is the man who's responsible for the Yellowstone National Park, the first national park. Uh, at any rate, he kept sending literally carloads of material, fossils, material back to Leidy. Between 1850 and 1870, Joseph Leidy examined virtually every fossil bone that came from the West. And uh, in this material were teeth, horse teeth. And also, so that this is where he, the source of his material, he did all of this work from, from teeth. 
In addition, at the Academy of Natural Sciences, they had bins of fossil material and in, the, in their collections, which were more or less uncharacterized, just, you know, drawers full, he found horse teeth that people had sent in. So through all his work, he, he must have identified at least five species. You also say that he is responsible for Americans' love affair with dinosaurs. Yes. Uh, well, let me say that, to begin with, that Hayden sent in the fossil material that Hayden sent back, he sent back dinosaur teeth, and Lydie identified dinosaurs as coming from the West, only through their teeth. But in about 1857, 1858, uh, a, enormous bones were found in, ha in, in a marl pit on a farm in Haddonfield, New Jersey. And uh, a friend of uh, Lydie, uh, his name was Folk, uh, was vacationing there, and he heard about this. He told Lydie. Well, Lydie came running and saw what was it was. It was a dinosaur, uh, which he called, uh, which he had hauled out. He examined it, and under his supervision, it was reassembled. Is that the one you have the picture of here? Yes, and oh, the man okay. under the dinosaur is a man called Wa Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins, who actually did the as assembling under Lydie and Cope's, but mainly Lydie's supervision. This was the first, well, I shouldn't say it's the first, it's the second dinosaur that was ever assembled like this, one in England, but that was assembled incorrectly it looked like a giant rhinoceros, four square. Lydie got it right. The image of the dinosaur that Lydie had reassembled is the one we know of today, with two large hind legs, a large tail, so that's a tripod structure like a kangaroo, and with two small, relatively small, grasping forelimbs. This is the image the everyday image of the dinosaur today, and it, is, it goes back to Joseph Lydie. Where is this dinosaur? That dinosaur, uh, it, it's not as complete as that. That wasn't actually the original, but it was very much like it, it but the original was l much less complete than that. Is in the, the, it is in the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. What is the Academy of Natural Sciences? Uh, it is the, it was, in fact, the first scientific academy in America, founded in 1812, and uh, it formed a library and uh, a, a museum and a forum for discussion of scientific matters. Politics and religion were forbidden. And uh, Joseph Lydie was in, it was, rather exclusive, and Joseph Lydie, when, uh, in about 1845, was invited to join. And uh, he became the librarian, and then he became the chief curator, which is a job he held for the rest of his life. And, uh, in fact, he became the president of the academy till his death. It, uh, it was primarily a museum and uh, the, it was primarily a place where 
for many years, wealthy men, doctors, lawyers who had, were interested in biology could uh, assemble. And it was only late in the 19th century and the 20th that they'd start hiring professional, full-time professionals. They were really against that. It was sort of a plaything for many well-to-do people, Philadelphians. It's still in operation? It is still in operation, very alive, very well. And it's open to the public? Open to the public, has a wonderful museum. Uh, and they, they just welcome everybody, they welcome membership and so on. They have wonderful displays. What would you see there if you went other than the dinosaur? Well, uh, you have uh, also, they have a wonderful library, but they have where I work, actually. But they have, they, one of the features they have, they have a room that's very warm because it's just swarming with butterflies of all kinds. You, you walk in and they'll land on your hand. Just the most exotic butterflies you've ever seen. It's a wonderful thing. It's wonderful for kids. In fact, my uh, grandchildren are coming this, this tomorrow, and I'm going to take them there. The butterflies are open year-round? Uh, well, I don't know. Every time I've gone, they, they seem to be there. Uh, but they have all sorts of stuffed animals. They have tremendous mineral collections, gems, uh, that sort of thing. Na it's a museum of natural history. It's very educational. And they, uh, in keeping with modern, the modern idea, they've tried to make it as accessible as possible you know, not lose that gloomy uh, look. So it's a wonderful place for kids. Anytime you go there, you can hardly hear yourself think because all the kids running around so excited and screaming and yelling. You said in the book that the Academy of Natural, Natural Sciences promoted pure science. Yes. And the Franklin Institute was practical science. Yes. What's the difference between the two? Well, uh, the Franklin Institute, which was formed about 1824, I think, was founded by rather well-to-do Philadelphians, uh, including, I think, Nicholas Biddle, the great banker, to educate the intelligent working man, to improve his skills, to apply what was learned in science to everyday life, to the various jobs. In fact, now this whole process is everywhere. It's in full flower. Uh, the liaison between science and industry is essentially what they were, uh, that was the spirit in which they, uh, they, uh, uh, they founded this institution. It was a kind of a night school for working people. Uh, they also had a museum, uh, and uh, they also had, I believe, some full t uh, many full-time workers. Uh, so, th although, you know, an interesting thing about the, it is that uh, at that time, uh, there was a tremendous amount of labor strife in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, you know, the tech, the, with all the textile mills and uh, various foundries that were just beginning to come into existence, iron and coal and so on. This is the 1820s? 
1820s on, yes. And uh, there was exploitation, which you can't imagine. I mean, if, uh, the 14-hour days, six days a week. July the 4th was off, the only holiday, that sort of thing. And uh, the uh, American labor movement really began in Philadelphia, but there was a lot, a lot of the uh, labor leaders were very hostile, with, I suppose, good reason. And they were very hostile to the, it was just an, towards the Franklin Institute. It was just another means by which the wealthy industrialists can exploit the working man. But uh, they lived through that because it did fulfill a wonderful function. It did prevail. And then through strikes, the working day went down to 10 hours. And then child labor was abolished and so on. And Franklin then, Institute is still in operation? Oh, yes, very much so. And what would people see if they went there? Uh, well, they, first of all, they see an enormous statue of Benjamin Franklin. They would sh see wonderful exhibits, some of the best exhibits in America of how things work and how, in fact, how the body works. Uh, they're wonderful exhibits there. Uh, I want to get back for the public. I want to get back to Joseph Leidy, but let me ask you a little bit about yourself. Uh, yes. Where are you from originally? I was born, raised, and educated in Toronto, the University of Toronto. I got my BA there, my medical degree there. I interned at the Toronto General Hospital. I then came to Boston and spread my wings. <laughs> I realized I wanted to do research. I always did. And I realized I knew nothing. So I went to MIT and got my PhD in biochemistry. And I've been in the lab ever since, till the mid-90s or so. I've always had a great interest in, in history, and I've always read pretty heavily in history. And gradually, I just, just overtook things. I, I just, and I, gave up my lab about four or five years ago, something like that. And I've been writing books ever since. This is the first. But I have actually a second book that's just accepted by the University of Pennsylvania Press, and I'm about 80% of the way through a third. What's your second book? My second is on a miraculous person. I seem to pick them, who, re who crossed uh, paths with Lydie. She was a, uh, born in 1839. Her name was Adele Field, of the Field family, but a very poor branch. And she was born in uh, northern New upstate New York, bone poor, became a school teacher, fell in love with a missionary, went to China. When she got there with her fiance, her fiance preceded her, but when she got there, he was dead, typhoid. But she decided to stay, became uh, a founder of the Bible School for Women. It was a movement in China which was very important, taken over by many Protestant denominations. Became an expert in the Chinese language. Wrote a big fat dictionary, English-Chinese. Translating Genesis into Chinese, she became interested in science and was advised to come to Philadelphia 
Joseph Leidy. And he was, in those days, women weren't, you know, educated for this sort of thing. They, their place was in the home, but he accepted her. Well, you mention her in your book. In yes, book. I do. And uh, she spent the two, as she said, the best years of her life in Philadelphia. And uh, she went back for a while, but then she came back and uh, she went to New York and she became publishing and her papers are still quoted today in the scientific literature. And she became very interested in the suffragist movement, a major figure, and in New York politics. And then she got fed up with the Europe and, and New York politics and the corruption, the Tammany and so on. And she went to Seattle where she founded several hospitals was a major figure in the women of Washington State getting the vote, and also had something to do with the abolishing of the white slave trade in Seattle and in Washington, and died in Washington. What is the name of that book? I don't know yet. It's Adele Field, with an E at the end. Uh, you are um, American Cancer Society Research Professor Emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania. Yes. Does that mean you've done cancer research? Yes. Uh, I, when I came, to, uh, well, I, after Boston and after MIT, I went to the National Institutes of Health for about five or six years, and then I was invited to come to the University of Pennsylvania as a professor. And then I got uh, a professorship of the American, endowed chair of the American Cancer Society to do research in cancer. And that's what I did for about uh, 30 years or so. And that's enough. Now you say in here that uh, Joseph Leidy in 1851 almost casually transplanted small pieces of human tumor under the skin of a frog and at the end of the experiment five months later found that the tissue had acquired a blood supply and survived. He may therefore be considered a pioneer in experimental cancer research and a divisor of one of its most important laboratory procedures. Yes. It, it, it sounds better than it actually is. It was a brilliant thing to do, but he couldn't possibly understand the significance of what he had done because the nature of cancer was simply unknown. The idea... Cancer is a, a, a disease of a, a, a malfunction of the control of growth, of cell division. He couldn't have known that. Uh, the concept of the cell was just a, a decade, uh, a, a less than that, about six years old. I mean, the, the whole idea that animals were nothing but masses of cells was something absolutely new. Nothing was really known about how cells divide or how they're formed. Some people thought that they just sort of precipitated out of a jelly. You know, they're just misconceptions. Well, not knowing the fundamentals of cell division and the cellular basis of cancer, you couldn't possibly devise interesting or useful uh, experiments or uh, theories about cancer. It was a very interesting idea, and as I say, once the people knew about these things, tumor transplantation is a major methodol experimental methodology. Yeah, another of his uh, 
activities. You say he, he continued his activities in forensic pathology, responding yes. to urgent calls from a detective or coroner requesting that he examine hair and undergarments with blood or distinguish rust from blood on a gun. For these services, he was paid from 15 to several hundred dollars. And you say that he may have been the first person to use a microscope to solve a crime. Well, as far as I know, he was. This was pretty early on. Uh, when there were that, weren't, to begin with, there weren't that many microscopes around. But the, the case that I mention in the book is one in which a farmer had been murdered in North Philadelphia. And the next day, the police picked up a man with bloodstains on his overalls and on a hatchet in his possession. He claimed that he had been killing chickens. This material was given to Lydie. They didn't know what to do with it. They gave it to Lydie. Lydie examined chicken blood and his own blood. And it so happens that the red blood cells of a chicken have a nucleus a circle within a circle. It's very evident. A glance could tell the difference. The human has no nucleus in its red blood cells. He looked at the stains and there were no nuclei. There were no circles within circles. He said, well, it, it was quite clear that the man was lying, that it was not chicken blood. And the man was so impressed uh, that he broke down and confessed, and he was convicted. So this may, and he did, of course, Lydie did it with the microscope. And this may very well be the first case, uh, certainly in America, maybe the world. I don't really know. What would he have been like to be around, to spend time with? Uh, he was a very uh, amiable person. As a matter of fact, he was a saintly sort of person, the thing that comes across is how he wasn't just admired, he was worshipped. Uh, he, he never had an enemy, and uh, people, uh, he, he was extremely helpful to students. Uh, he'd spend any amount of time explaining as if he had nothing else to do, and yet he was a driven man. It's an interesting paradox. Uh, it may be that he spent all this time with, quote-unquote, insignificant students because it forced him to take a break from his work. He could work, get up at 4.30 in the morning and work till breakfast, and then after breakfast, work till 8 o'clock at night without even getting up to drink, take a drink of water. And uh, he was periodically working himself into states of exhaustion. I think that he, he was very kind to students, well, for the right reasons, but also uh, because it was a break, a legitimate way to break self himself from working. Uh, he, and, uh, and just like breaking down and with one disease or another, severe headaches which he had at times, was just a way, once you're, you're sick, you have a legitimate reason for not working. Respectively, you know, it's not a moral judgment if you can't work, you're not lazy. And he became ill quite frequently because he just kept working. He'd have to go to the shore and spend a month there. 
but he still kept working a little bit anyway. But uh, this was his way of stopping himself. At any rate, he was a very amiable person. He was, uh, had many good friends, close friends, who really admired and worshipped him. He was actually taken up by the upper crust of Philadelphia, the mainline people, who before the mainline was actually formed. Uh, he was their darling he, because he was a perfect gentleman, respectable, brilliant, but not pushy, not aggressive. He fit in very well, and they just fawned over him. Uh, so that, uh, but he had many, uh, many friends, lifelong friends. As I said, he never had an enemy. What did he do for relaxation? Well, he didn't relax all that much. He would, uh, as a matter of fact, he, uh, I should say, he married late. Uh, age 41? Uh, yeah, age 41. And uh, he was sorry that he had never, he hadn't married earlier because the marriage was blissful. But she must have been very tolerant because he took his microscope to the dining room table. <laughs> I don't think many wives would permit that. <laughs> uh, for, uh, but uh, so, and even in the midst of company with all his nephews and nieces running around, there he'd be working. And once in a while, he'd take a break and lift a, one of the, his nieces, nephews on his knee and say, look down the microscope, look at that, that sort of thing. Uh, he, he did a little bit of traveling. He went to Europe a few times, but he, in fact, he worked very hard. There was the monument, a monument, a, a cathedral he missed. Uh, he uh, and went to the theater and the opera in Paris and London and Ger Germany. I mean, he was the ultimate tourist. He just sort of never really knew how to relax. And yet, his image is one of very calm, laid back. You know, there's something so... T so paradoxical, there are unexplained paradoxes in him. When he was in Europe, did he deal with many scientists? Oh, yes. He was one of the best-known scientists in Europe. In fact, he, in 1848 and in, again in 1850, the professors at the University of Pennsylvania took him along because their, uh, their uh, charge was to buy specimens, to buy anatomical forms and books and that sort of thing. And they asked him to be their assistant. But in fact, I came to realize that he was such a star, publishing like crazy and read by Europeans, that he was really their entree. He was the entree because they embraced him. Once they went to Berlin, where the great Johannes Mueller presided in his institute, and uh, they presented their cards, and uh, they also said that uh, Joseph Leidy is here, and the man who conveyed this to Mueller, uh, conveyed this to Mueller, and then Mueller came down, which one is Leidy, you know? 
so that he was known by people in the field and admired very much. Among the English, he was, uh, he knew and was uh, really admired by Huxley and by Sir Richard Owen and Tyndall, Joseph Tyndall, and many was of the great English, and Darwin. I want to ask you about Darwin, but was American science generally respected by European scientists? Well, Europeans always had a patronizing image, uh, view of, of American science. You know, they figured that Americans were good at practical things, but let, leave the thinking to them, you know, that sort of thing. And whenever anything came out in an English or an American journal, it was the, Europe, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the European journal of material that prevailed. They quoted themselves, and they sort of ignored what Americans had to say. This was a, a, a tendency. I make a point in the book. I think it's something I've thought about, and that is that America was a client of Europe at that time. Even though its population was growing, it was pretty by mid-century or so, it was the equal of England and France and Germany. This is the 1850s. 1850s, 1860s. Uh, yet there, it, it is a fact they did not have men of the greatest of Europeans, their stature, but they did a lot of wonderful things. But whatever they did was underrated, just as their art was, which I discuss in the book, that, uh, that I think the estimation and the clout of the uh, science of a country, of a nation, and the art of a nation really to a large extent depends on the economic and political power of the nation. At that time, uh, the United States was a client of Europe. It was definitely below. There was a lot, it was almost a, an economic colony. There was a tremendous amount of English capital invested in the United States. It was a place to make money for Englishmen uh, and the other Europeans. Well, I think this is reflected in the fact that European art prevailed. Anything done in America was rather provincial and in the boondocks. And it was the same with their science. But since the Second World War, the shoe is on the other foot. Now America is the colossus, for better or worse. It is the power, and its science prevails, and its art prevails. It writes the history. It rewrites the history. It writes the reviews. It does the evaluating. It is arrogant on our side now, as it was on their side then. A balance will ultimately come. I think Europe is now coming up so that it will match America. You say in here that uh, his favorite author was the popular Uida? Uida. Uida, O-U-I-D-A, unknown yes. today and for good reason. Yes. Her novels were shocking bestsellers, preposterously overblown romantic tales with details that bordered on the prurient. One can safely call it trash. Now, what he, does that say about him that that was his favorite well, author? Well, it was a quirky little thing. He was not quirky, but this was a quirky. It was, you asked me before, what did he do for relaxation? I suppose this was 
relaxation. Uh, what he did, for, I'll tell you what he did for relaxation. He did what he did as a boy, and that is that he went up and down the Schuylkill River, the banks of the Schuylkill River, and the Wissahickon Creek, looking under rocks for his pet organisms. He knew the Schuylkill and the Wissahickon backwards, every organism. As a matter of fact, he was dismayed as with increasing population and, and pollution that the number of species decreased. Things that he were flourishing 1853 were still there in 1870. 1876, gone. And he was very unhappy about the pollution. In fact, he was one of the people who put a stop to uh, certain companies dumping their toxic wastes into Schuylkill. That was a long time ago. And I mean, abattoirs would uh, would dump all their awful, their waste and all that sort of thing into the river. Just let it float out past Philadelphia. So that uh, it was really, the river really became polluted. And he was very unhappy about that and worked against it. He was also very interested in city water, which city officials said was perfectly fine. And he looked down his microscope and he could see all bits of junk and all kinds of organisms in, in, the, in the drinking water. And he, very uncharacteristically, he would send vitriolic letters to the newspaper denouncing the city officials who claimed that it was perfectly good when you could, the water was terrible and a source of a real danger for spreading of disease. Why isn't he better remembered? Well, there are a number of reasons why I think that uh, he, he is not, he, he, his, he his name disappeared. As a matter of fact, that's one of the main m messages of my book, or the, the purpose of the book, is to, to answer the question, why, how could a man who is so popular, or fairly well known, but also so revered and so famous and such an accomplished person, disappear after his death so that most people have never heard of him. I certainly never heard of him. And the answer is rather complex, but there are a number of things that can be cited. One is that he was a quintessential, a true Philadelphian, low-key, understated, modest, never blew his own horn, would never get into a fight or an argument or defend things that he should have defended you know, his priorities. Uh, people who would repeat what he did and not even mention him, he wouldn't do a thing. He said some of his friends referred to him it, as an invertebrate. And uh, without backbone. This is the only fault his friends ever had, could find in him, that he, they wish he, he could not say no, and they wish he would be more assertive because he was taken advantage of. Uh, Philadelphia is that way itself. It, he took on the color of his city. Uh, it, it never had its publicists, its mi legend makers, its myth makers. In fact, it, it abounds in detractors. It's a, I'm not a Philadelphian, but in my years here, I think it's a marvelous city, much underrated. 
But that's other people's problems, not mine. I take full advantage of a wonderful city, you know. And he would have done, if he had been a Bostonian, he would be much better known, you know, with all the hoopla and the, the, the writers and so on. But there are actually more serious reasons. He refused to speculate, to theorize. If he had had his name attached to some theory, right or wrong, it doesn't matter, but there's something people could latch on to. You know, Einstein's theory or something. You know Einstein, although you may not know anything about Einstein or know anything about his theory. You know Einstein's theories of relativity. Same thing. He never did that sort of thing. He, all he provided were vast amounts of facts, reliable facts, increased knowledge. Well, this tends to get buried by new facts as they come along so that they're at the bottom of the pile, so to speak. Uh, so he didn't do that. Another thing is that he was what was, and he was what was called a Baconian. He felt that you didn't have to speculate or theorize. Theorizing was lying. It, was, it made up for a deficiency in knowledge. If you know the facts, you don't have to worry about theories, which is incorrect. But that is what he thought. Uh, he, he was not an experimentalist. You see, even in his own lifetime, he was becoming somewhat obsolete because the age of experimentation was coming on fast in the 1880s. What age was he of? Uh, he was of the old natural historian age, descriptive, non-intrusive. He didn't torture nature, quote-unquote. He just observed. He just described. He didn't manipulate nature to see how it worked. But in the 1880s, well, it started before that in Europe, and in fact, Leidy knew some of the greatest of experimentalists, the Claude Bernard in France uh, and many of the Germans. Uh, despite that, he stuck to his ways. He just Right to the end, he described, he did brilliant. He described all sorts of things, all sorts of insights. So he is a remarkable person, but he would not experiment, which is where the future lay. And as a result, even in his own time, as I just said, he was becoming obsolete. He, the, the experimenters were taken, taking over, and he was not an experimentalist. But he was revered. He was revered as a saintly human. We are out of time, unfortunately. This is the cover of the book we've been talking about. We've been talking with Leonard Warren, the author of Joseph Leidy, The Last Man Who Knew Everything, Yale University Press. Leonard Warren, thank you very much. You're welcome. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.